Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Fellow travelers on the path of the beam, before you jump into the next wheel of Ka, a quick warning. The second half of it gets dark, really dark. Steve and I have a no-holds-barred discussion. Please keep this trigger warning in mind. We talk about sexual assault, violence towards children, and infant loss. Long days and pleasant nights. The Midnight Myth Podcast presents The Wheel of Ka, an exploration into the writings of Stephen King. What started as two friends rereading The Dark Tower has turned into an exploration of Stephen King's writing writ large. This episode, we discuss the first half of Stephen King's It. Say thank you, Sai. A drop of water gathered at the lip of the shiny chromium faucet. It grew fat, grew pregnant, you might say. It sparkled, it dropped, plink. He had dipped his right forefinger in his own blood and had written a single word on the blue tiles above the tub, written it in two huge, staggering letters. A zigzagging, bloody finger mark fell away from the second letter of this word. His finger had made that mark, she saw, and his hand fell into the tub, where it now floated. She thought Stanley must have made that mark. His final impression on the world, as he lost consciousness. It seemed to cry out to her. It. Another drop fell into the tub. Plink. That did it. Patty Uris at last found her voice, staring into her husband's dead and sparkling eyes. She began to scream. Fellow travelers on the path of the beam, Derek and Steve are back at it with your next Wheel of Ka, here to talk the second half of Stephen King's just monstrous, pardon me, tome, It. Really excited. I burned through the second half of this book probably faster than anything I have ever read. I have so much to get to. I don't want to waste any time. I'm going to get right into it. But as always, Steve, welcome back to the Midnight Myth Podcast. You too, you too. Great to see you. Man, how you doing? Oh, guess who's back? Back again, just like the... Backstreet Boys, those legends said all those years ago. Guess who's back? Back again. Boo. <laughs> I'm good. You know what, man? I feel great today. Uh, I'm, I'm excited. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm more excited to talk about this book than, than any of them. And I don't know why. Uh, probably because it's, it's new and we haven't done it in a while. But I feel good. Um, you know, this is, there's two things I wanted to bring up before we talk about it at all. So this is the first recording that you and I have done since Arthur Roland was born. So congratulations, Dad, and congratulations to Laurel. I can say uh, with my own eyes that they are incredible parents, uh, even after a month. You know, you have no idea what's happening, and yet you are tackling it with grace and poise and a lot of strength. So congratulations to the two of you. Oh, man, thank you. Absolutely. 
You know, it's not every day you become a dad. Um, and the second thing is, I just realized that by the time this comes out, we will have reached our second anniversary, the Wheel of Ka, February 26th. Nope, that's, that's not right. Is that right? Oh, yeah, that, yeah, that's, that's right. That sounds right. In February. Yeah. yeah. So February 26th, 2019 is when the Gunslinger was released. And so uh, happy two years, buddy. Dude, I can't believe uh, it's flown by. It's been two years flown by. We've done the entirety of the Dark Tower. We've done Salem's Lot, and now we've tackled it. <laughs> it's a lot of book. I mean, it's a lot of book. And we have—I mean, we haven't even scratched the surface of Mm-mm. all things Stephen King. And like you know, they say in the Dark Towers, even the beams serve the tower. Do you think you would be any different? And even this podcast serves the tower. And yeah, we are we are no different. Um, thank you for those kind words about the birth of my son. Man. Absolutely, man. Dude, he's the coolest kid. He really is. He's such a nugget. I, he's I know such I'm a biased. Beautiful boy. He re- well, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm telling you the truth. I mean, maybe I'm a little biased. I'm probably a little bit. I just want to say, too, for everyone to know. Um, a lot of you know I had gotten COVID, mm-hmm. and that had delayed the publishing and then the reading of Wheel of Ka and It right. right before Arthur got born. And I'm sitting next to Steve, who sadly also yeah. had gotten COVID, yeah. who is now finally Finally clear, over it. Finally clear. Clear from the COVID. All this is to say, it's been a weird year. Yeah, it has. The pandemic is raging Everyone, please do whatever you can to stay healthy. Yeah, and stay safe. Yep. Speaking from two people that got it, a very close friend of mine who probably gave it to me, who is also a colleague, almost died from the pandemic. Yeah, it's scary. And is making a full recovery, but was very close to the end there. Like, they were almost like, hey, who do you want to read the last rites? That's how close he was. And thankfully came back. And um, anyway, let's start with it. Yeah, let's do it. The second half of the book. And listen, it did, listen, you think it got intense there. Just wait. This second half of the book is wild. This book is wild. I don't know about you, but this feels like the most tower adjacent thing that we've touched yet. I mean, it's only the second book outside of the series, but it feels so tower adjacent. It very much feels like it is in the same world, the same macroverse as the tower. It feels that concepts such as Ka free will, cosmic turtles, good versus evil, these main themes that are being played around in the Dark Tower are really present in this, in particular, the second half of the book. Reputationally, it is known for having a great first half and a weaker second half. That's insane to me. I did not feel that way. No, I don't feel that way at all. I feel the opposite, to be honest with you. I mean, I enjoyed the first half of the book. Don't get me wrong. But the second half of the book, it, it feels like a fantasy adventure and a horror film all in all in one. I mean, it cooks, it moves. Even some of the parts that are a little slower in the second half, some of the things that be- become a little metaphysical, especially when we start, you know, w- when time overlaps with each other. I mean, I don't know. It, it feels a lot like The Tower to me, which is might be the reason why we enjoyed it a little bit more than somebody who might not have read The Tower. I also think... A large part of why, and this is me totally making this up, and this could be complete and total hogwash, but a big part of the reason people grappled to this the, this book, it is they saw themselves in the characters. Mm-hmm. And I think once you get to magic, smoke, rituals, 
and biting the tongue of the demon and saying phrases to you know travel beyond cosmic turtles. I think there are some readers that just probably check out on that. I yeah. really do. I think some are just like, sure. this is probably not what they were looking for. But for me, oh, please, I couldn't put it down. It's funny. I remember complaining about how big the book was. And then when I was done, I was like, oh, I wish there were more. And similar to my experience with the tower. Right. I want to just start it all over again. I know. I know. I want to just like, I have to read this book another time. I can't just set it down. I want to do the whole book again, knowing everything that happens and seeing if I have a different reaction. Yeah, because, I mean, you're going to see it from a different lens. And and the interesting thing about this is we've talked about this. We look at Stephen King's body of work through this specific lens of the tower. And so I feel like part of the reason why we're both so excited is because there are so many direct connections to the Dark Tower that maybe some of his other books, you know, they're not that, it's not that strong. Right. If that makes sense. It does. As I trip over myself. All right. So let's just try to summarize very quickly what happens in the second half. And then let's, you mentioned the tower references. Let's pick apart some of them. So this is where the circle gets stapled. The past and present get folded into a circle. The losers are, are adults and have to remember things from their childhood. They are children and they, they culminate in both the past and present happening with the ritual of Chewed commencing, where the losers have to psychically battle it. Meanwhile, threats like Henry Bowers are looming in both past the present. Tom, Beverly's, Beverly's wife, pardon me, comes back. And all of these forces seem to be conspiring against the losers. They get locked into a psychic battle when they see Pennywise's quote-unquote, true form, at least true form on the planet Earth as a gigantic female pregnated spider. Right. And they lock psychologically and get transported, both Bill and as kids and Bill and Richie, into like another dimension, past the cosmic turtle mansion, into a thing called the Deadlights, where its true evil form is, and they have to essentially psychically battle it, which then leads it to retreat. As children, it does retreat. As adults, Richie, uh, Bill, and uh, Ben chase after it. Ben is stomping the eggs of it, which is presumably this, this creature is going to lay eggs and have more its all over the world. While Richie and Ben get into a physical battle, and Ben, I'm sorry, Richie and Bill get into a physical battle, and Bill rips out the heart of it. All of this is happening in 1985 when the weather sort of turns on Derry and the main street of Derry sinks into the ground. Natural disasters happen. And then the end, the losers go their separate way as adults. All of it fades from their minds. And on the similar, similarly, the kids form a circle and they do a blood oath and they vow that they will return should it return and they had not defeated it. And it sort of ends where they begin with the losers away from Derry, forgetting everything, but finding maybe some semblance of peace. Once again, Derek's superpower. Recaps. Recaps. I mean, there's a lot left out from Henry Bowers escaping and uh, getting a car ride from a zombie to all these (laughs) additional haunts to... Stan Uris's head showing up in a refrigerator in oh, Mike Hanlon's house, man. covered in bird, you know, feathers, and there's just 
so much. There's the Beverly and the losers as children all having sex to have a yeah. ritual to get out of the the sort of underbelly and sewers. There's a lot left out, but essentially that's it. And we're going to get in. We're going to we're going to go as long as we want to go talking as much as we want to talk. There's so no strap in. There's no time limit uh, to this because we just have so much to say. Let's start. You mentioned how tower adjacent it is. Yeah. Pick out some things. Now they could be specific references. You think that hit the tower. They could be thematic or symbolic references. Sure. I mean, well, I mean, there's, you know, we talked about obviously some of the original signs in the first half of the book, but you know, the turtle comes back, Maturin comes back, super, super prominent in this. It reminds me of the beam of the turtle. I mean, clearly there's a connection to that beam. Um, two of the things that I really wanted to talk about, I'll start with this, is is there's a passage where Beverly essentially becomes a gunslinger. And it's the first time the kids attack it uh, with the the silver pellets that they've made. And there's that moment where time slows down and she basically falls right into the gunslinger's oath. You know, she's shooting with her mind. She's not shooting with her hand. She She's completely and utterly connected to that moment. And it's funny because the first time she misses, she misses. And, and, and that's not when this moment happens. It's after she misses that it always reminds me. It's like that sound, boom. You know what I mean by that? Where your whole focus, it's funny, it, it, just the look on Derek's face, I wish you could see it. I'm smiling and yeah, shaking because, my head. Because it's it's that moment where she just focuses in and everything becomes super clear and super sharp. And again, you know, I, I wonder if part of the reason people don't enjoy the second half of the book is because if you really don't know the tower references, this just seems kind of random that these things happen out of nowhere. Or... Is it that we're just embellishing and looking into it? I don't know. I don't know. That's a fair question. I have I mean, no idea. I remember reading that and checking that you were in the same spot, and you and I were both like, she right just away. became a gunslinger. Right away. And you can see she's killing with her heart. She right. And she, like you said, is shooting with the mind. Time seems to slow. I I don't know if if that's a reference non-Towerist would be confused about or not. I've, I have no idea. I'm a Taoist, so it's hard for me to comment. Yeah, I, I just wonder, and I think there are better examples of that, like especially especially the turtle. You know, I'm sure there are people get up and like, why is there a turtle talking to Bill? What What's this thing about this turtle? You know, and, and you don't understand that it's, well, it's it's a god. It's a, it's, it's a companion. It's, it's you know, it's, it, it's a, a guardian of a being. Yeah, it you is know? living on the the... The edge of the multiverse creating universes that feed back to the tower. Yeah, and again, look, I don't want to sound like a complete and total like, oh, look at me. I know all about, uh, look at me being a towerist, which is totally what I'm doing right now. But I don't mean it that way. But I feel like I, me as a reader was more excited about moments like that. Moments where we realize that that Eddie has the touch and that Eddie and Richie can can talk to each other in their minds. Richie and Mike can talk to each other because they're cotet. They're completely connected, the seven of them, the losers. Let me play devil's advocate here. Sure. Because my mom has read it, and it's one of her all-time favorite books, though she is of the camp that the ending gets a little absurd. Mm. But she has read it. One of her favorite books couldn't put it down. Never read a single one of the Dark Tower books i would imagine and consider this the characters don't know there's a tower in this macroverse sure they don't know there's a beam they commune with this turtle and it's just something that they have to do 
so that they can overcome Pennywise the Clown, it. They feel this constant push that there is another hand guiding them. I'll pull this out here. This is from page 686. This is um, Mike as an adult looking at all of them after he's gotten them together in his house. The quote is, but it was Mike himself years later who advanced the idea that perhaps none of them were entirely their own masters in the events of that summer. That if luck and free will had played their parts, then their roles have been narrow ones. He would point out a number of these subconscious coincidences to the others at the reunion lunch. End quote. This is a thing that he is starting to doubt the idea that they are completely free. And this force has a face. Mm-hmm. And that face is the turtle. Right. It has a name. It has a face. It has a corporeal form. But... Pennywise has a face and a name in a corporeal form, but it's not the reality. The idea that I get from the end is that there's a reality behind reality. We can only see and perceive things, and those are largely reflections. Pennywise thinks when we get the chapters, we can finally see its mind, that what those projections are, the way the glamour works, he says, are reflections. Ends up reflecting what people are putting into Pennywise, and that when Bill finally gets to the dark lights, realizes that it is eternal. Mm -hmm. It is everywhere. Mm -hmm. Evil is eternal, and evil is everywhere. But there is a counterforce, and that's the turtle, which guides them. And I would even argue that they defeat the corporeal form of Pennywise, but evil itself in this macroverse, we know this as Stephen King readers, has not been defeated. And it can't be. I don't think it can be. It is still out there in the dark lights somewhere. So I think... Long, long-winded point. I think that, yes, these moments are amazing, and I don't know if you have to be a Towerist to enjoy them. Yeah, and I don't, I mean, I don't necessarily think you have to, to rescind my original statement, because you make a lot of sense. Thank you very much. Steve came right out of the gate, as normal, with, uh, with boom, this is, why, this is how it is, damn it. No, but the truth is, is that it's not that you have to have read the, the Tower books. It I wonder if I would have enjoyed the book as much myself if I didn't know the connections to the tower, if that makes sense. So from my perspective, I'm not entirely sure, knowing me, you know, yeah, the ending might have gotten a little weird. But because I've accepted the fact through reading the tower that no matter where you go with Stephen King, because all of these books can relate back to the Dark Tower, no matter what you do, no matter where you go, shit's going to get weird. It's going to get weird in almost every book. You know, I don't, I still, but, but even the ending to this book, I don't understand how people don't like it. Tower or no tower. Hold that thought. We'll get to that. I'll hold it. Yeah. Let's, let's, do you have any more tower references you want to bring up? I've got a few. Uh, I mean, I only had a couple of questions. Um, I mean, one of the questions that I had that I wanted to ask you specifically is like, do you think that Pennywise and this level of evil, these dark lights, are a manifestation from one of the levels of the tower or from the Crimson King? Yeah, that's a really great question. Yes and no. Sure. I I think, I don't think this macro verse, I don't think any of these characters really understand it. I don't think the characters in the Dark Tower really understand it. Mm -hmm. And I think we see these worlds through the eyes of these characters. 
And through their eyes, it doesn't really all make sense. What if the tower isn't real itself? It's just the projection of the macroverse that Roland feeds into. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Because one of the, the major themes of how its power works is to play with perception and use your own perceptions against you. And it tinkers with this idea that there is a subjective nature to our reality and that subjective nature is our imagination and that imagination is innately powerful. Powerful enough that Pennywise can use it to turn it against you and to feed on it Mm -hmm. and to feed on worlds because of it. That, yes, I do think there's a, a literal way to interpret the macroverse and that is that uh, it is a creature not unlike Mordred, right. not unlike Dandelo, right. that are servants of the Crimson King. Well, and, and the and reason I, I ask that is because there is that portrait of Pennywise in the Crimson King's lair in the tower. And so that's part of the thing that immediately made me think, especially with Dandelo as well, like what is the direct connection of Pennywise to the tower? Um, and I just wondered if you, yeah, again, I think that's brilliant though. I, I think that is, I think that is one literal way to interpret it. And I think that's a hundred percent correct. Cause it almost feels like me to me that like that fall from grace narrative, you know, like the Satan narrative of falling from heaven and, and, and originally being an angel and falling from grace and being sent to hell. I, I had gotten that perception with Pennywise that, that he, or that it, she really, huh? you know, that that Pennywise was sent to this part of the multiverse, this earth, maybe, I mean, maybe as a punishment, maybe as a sentence. I love that. Except God is not a man with a pointy beard right. and a magic wand creating the universe, but a cosmic turtle burping and farting the universe <laughs> into existence. Exactly. exactly. And this one piece that kind of rebelled against the cosmic turtle turned out to be an evil f- cosmic fart that created this and sent it down from this cosmic place and just to wreak havoc. I, it's an interesting, totally bananas Stephen King version of that story. It is bananas. I, I think that's spot on. I think we could understand it as a Satan-like character mm-hmm. falling from grace, like literally falls to earth in ancient times right. from some sort of portal asteroid. It's not really clear where the it comes from I, right there's a part of me that feels like the sky just opens up and it's not yeah from I mean, it space just comes from somewhere in the macroverse and lands on dairy yeah and yeah oh, totally dairy. agree do you have any other tower related questions um no not directly i don't okay no i lied there are two quick things that you and i had discussed before that i, I just saw in my notes so the storm that happens at the end of the book, this giant storm that floods, I mean, basically makes Derry a giant sinkhole, reminds me of a beam quake. And it reminds me that maybe, I had mentioned, I think, in the first episode that maybe the, the beam had already broken in Derry. But uh, lo and behold, I think I disagree with myself. I think that this might be the start of that beam quake that this part of, of, of the beam has broken. I mean, it's broken. I mean, the, the fact that, that we have this, this really giant 
decimating storm intercut with the fact that these kids and adults are trying to fend off this evil is nuts. It's nuts. It's terrifying. Everything feels like chaos. It's absolute chaos. And I think it's because all hell is breaking loose. Not to, not to throw that pun in there, but it's everything is breaking loose. And I, I don't know if, if you recognize that at all or, or how you feel about that. I, I totally agree with that. I think when they become, when they do the ritual again as adults and they find the turtle, they find the turtle dead. If we, right. are, if we want to understand that from a literal tower cosmology, that part of the beam has been broken. Yes. And thereafter, we see Derry get destroyed. <laughs> it also links to me Derry and it as one, which is something that Bill as a child says to them on page 987 of my copy of the book, he says, quote, it is Derry, oh, end yeah. quote. Oh, yeah. And says that Derry and it are one. And one of the uh, great interpretations I've seen of this, this comes from a YouTube channel I really like called Wisecrack, and they do this book review session called Thug Notes. And the analysis is that you know it has been there for thousands and thousands of years, maybe millions Depending upon when it actually landed. Right. And it isn't until people come that the evil really manifests. And the idea is that Derry and it are one, and that this evil is aided by and created by ultimately the people of Derry. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that when it goes, so does Derry. I thought it was telling that all of the developers that had plans for Derry. They all abandoned they after all got this because they're like, they wanted to come feed on this evil too. Yep. They wanted to yeah. come exploit this evil. And now that it's not there, they're like, it's not worth rebuilding we'll this. We'll go somewhere else. We'll go somewhere else where there's some more evil to exploit. That's fucked. Yeah. Really That's good a great stuff. Point. Okay. The only other one I have, and we really quick, uh, is so there's a portion in the book at the, towards the end. Well, really at the end where the losers start to forget each other. And, you know, Mike is writing down names and has written all this information down, but also understands that that language is going to disappear from the page as well, which is why heartbreaking. I mean, truly, it's beautiful and it's heartbreaking all at the same time. And you were actually the one that brought up to me the other night when we were talking about this, that there's the portion where Susanna in the Dark Tower forgets Roland and Eddie and Jake. And oi, and I forgot about that. And I was like, holy shit, that's right. That's another direct connection. She totally forgets. She's got that beautiful moment where she basically just walks off into her reality. And it's the same with these kids. They get, they finally get to live in peace. And what's really screwed up is that peace means their quartet is broken. And that is something for me personally, a, a person who is really connected to that idea and concept of Katet, that broke my heart, is the fact that in order for them to live happy, fulfilled, and safe lives, they have to forget one, one another. Can I tell you this, a, a story about me finishing this book? I'm Please. stuttering, like stuttering Bill, because this is going to be hard for me to say. Please. There were parts of this book that were really personally painful for me for a variety of reasons. I'm going to highlight one of them a little bit later. When I finished the book, I put it down and I walked up. I'm choking up just thinking about this. 
I walked into my son's room. My wife is there, and my wife is just playing with him gently after changing his diaper. And I say, I finished it, and they all forgot. Mm. And I just bawled. And it was the vision of seeing the two most important people in the world to me, my wife and my son, and this book and this podcast and what it all means to me. And these past year, uh, having had COVID, and it's like every emotion hit me in one moment. It's hitting me right now a little bit. I am getting a little misty-eyed. And the idea that these characters, the sacrifice that they ultimately make is their innocence. Mm -hmm. They sacrifice their childhood to this monster. And And they sacrifice their love for one another. And innocence and love are intimately related, especially with your young friends. And yes, they get peace, but all of it is forgotten. And it does matter. You know, one of the, the things about this book is your actions have consequences, whether you remember them or not. Yep whether you understand them or not, whether you were psychologically or physically capable of remembering them or not, dairy does get destroyed permanently because it gets destroyed. And that act of forgetting, it was very similar when Susanna throws the guns into the trash can and she gets into a where and when in New York and, and, (laughs) and all of it is forgotten by our own heroes. Yeah. And it is a, cruel, beautiful tragedy that these characters go through and that, I mean, man, when Bev says to Mike, I'll never forget you. Yeah, right. And he's like, yeah. And he's like, what was Eddie's last name? And I'm like, he just died. Right. You don't even remember his last name. It's out of their control. It was a lot, man. It was a lot for me. Yeah, I mean, and, and there's a lot to talk about. I mean, something that we'll talk about later. There's this this big idea of, you know, what happens when you become an adult and the things that you remember, the things that you forget and, and what that means, what that sacrifice of becoming an adult means, because it's something that we don't get to choose. You don't get to choose growing older. You don't get to choose losing innocence. You don't get to choose the trauma that comes as a child. These are things that you don't get to choose. They're experiences that you have to live through, you know, and, and I, I think one of the thing that King, one of the things that King does well, probably does the best. And I, I've said this before is that he creates characters that are so real and tangible. And again, I've said this over and over again, the real evil in this book is not even Pennywise. It's people like Beverly's father. It's Patrick Hochstetter. It's Henry Bauer's father. It's these adults who are out of control. It's the guy. Well, I don't want to bring that up. That's my moment for later. Okay. All right. Let, I've got a few that tower was, things. Thank you for sharing that, man. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Absolutely, dude. And also, yeah. you're going to have so many different experiences in life being a father now. I mean, I'm sure the second half of this book hit you much differently than it would have a year ago if we read it. It did. And I will later highlight one thing that was really tough and I had to put the book down for about a day and a half and really kind of interrogate my feelings. I'll get, I'll get to that later. Yo, we went through it in this book. We went through it. This was, this was a tough read. So good. It was it. uh, I'll save my, 
I will save, we'll give some time at the end for our final thoughts on it. And I have some final thoughts about what this book has meant to me. But some tower references, I digress. So at page, uh, what page was this? 684, Bill, young Bill as kid in um, 1958 is doing research about what he thinks it is and says that its power is called a glamour. And we see glamour as a power, a magic power to cast illusions in the dark tower. Right. Also, the ritual of Chachud sounds a lot like Choo Choo. Yes, it does. Charlie the Choo Choo. Yes, it does. The ritual to beat the uh, in the ritual of Choo Choo or Chachud is to bite the tongue and then tell jokes and riddles until you defeat the monster. Oh my God, that's why Richie does it because he's the joke. Oh man. Which is a lot like Blaine the Mono. Oh my, yo. And how Eddie the character in The Dark Tower defeats Blaine the Mono with jokes and riddles. So the ritual of Choo Choo seems a lot like how these characters defeat Blaine the Mono to me. My head is seconds from exploding. (laughs) That is, I I didn't even think about that. Ah. The other thing that I want to point out too is the ultimate, one of the biggest themes in this book is time as a wheel. Oh, yeah. As ka as a wheel. And there's lots of references about how what Mike needs to do is form the circle since he remembers. His job is to have the adult versions remember so that they can then remember their childhood, form a circle like they do, and defeat it finally. After they defeat it, they form a circle and they promise to come back. The idea of people reliving their traumas. Beverly has an abusive father, has an abusive husband. Right. Bill's first love is Beverly. He marries someone who looks like Beverly. To a T. Um, Eddie grows up with uh, having this, knowing full well that his childhood sickness is in his mind and casting that illusion, chooses to perpetuate that and then marries someone very similar to his mother. Almost exactly alike. And Mike sits there and he says, this is a quote here I want to pull out, and I believe this is page 711. The only thing that really remains is to finish going through it, to complete the job of catching up and staple the past and present so that the strip of experience forms some half-assed kind of wheel. Yes, Mike thinks that's it. Tonight the job is to make the wheel. Tomorrow we can see if it still turns the name of this podcast, baby. Yeah. Ka is a wheel. It is. And, that, and, and, and that's its entire purpose. That's its entire purpose, Ka. You know, I read a really interesting, um, I, you know, I went on a, on a Twitter rant the other night looking at Dark Tower stuff. And I, I found this interesting discussion about whether or not Ka is a positive thing or not. And, you know, I think ultimately I walked away thinking that it's, it's, it's neither good nor bad. It just is. It hold, is. Hold that thought. I have one more Again. really quick reference, and then we're going to talk about that. Held. One quick reference. One of the kids in the town of Derry, his name is Jimmy Cullum. In the Dark Tower, we have the John Cullum, who ends up forming the Tet Corporation, I went down a rabbit hole to see if anyone else has put that together. It's not on stephenkings.com. I couldn't find anything on Reddit. I tried to feel like, are those the same? They're literally spelled the same. They both start with J, which makes me think, 
Oh, Jimmy, they're somehow related. Come yeah, on. Jimmy Cullum is related to John Cullum, which solidifies that we're on Keystone Earth. Yeah, I, I, I mean, even if we're grasping, to be completely honest, I mean, Stephen King is known for using the same first names, but last names, I mean, there is a reason for that, for sure, if you ask me, at least. Yeah, I really do think that there's a connection. Very loose. Maybe I'm reading into it or not. Well... And you can go. That's which the I found, point of this podcast. <laughs> found, there's a whole Dark Tower st- section on Stephen King's website dedicated to connections between Stephen King's book and the Dark Tower. And I expected to see that on there, <laughs> and I couldn't. I yeah. didn't. So maybe I'm I'm making it up. It's I mean, not on but King's that's website. Also, that would be a really small, specific reference, though. That's true. You know? All right. So let's talk about this idea. If, ca- if fate is a good thing... Because there are several moments where the losers feel the sense of being guided, feel a sense of higher purpose. Yeah. One of them says at one point, and I should have wrote this down, I forgot, that they can't disregard the idea of God anymore because of this experience. Even if they can't really remember it fully, there is some sort of mystical force guiding them. Is it a good thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Again... I don't know if it's for us to judge good or bad because there are moments where Ka is in control where really beautiful things happen. There are moments where Ka is in control where really terrible, awful things happen. And I think if we can pull from Roland, you know, his, uh, his concept of Ka is that it just is. You know, there is no good and bad. It just is. that It is fate. Um, and sometimes I think it's even bigger than fate. It's more ambiguous than fate. To me, it's an energy. It, it is kind of the spiritual energy that guides things along based on what it thinks should happen. And it does create a magic between people. And I think the one of the biggest consistent themes of every Stephen King book I read is free will and fate, free will and Ka coming into direct conflict And I don't think any Stephen King book I've read comes down definitively whether this is all all caw or all free will. I think it's always a little bit of both. Absolutely. I mean, look, we've read 10 books. We read eight Dark Tower books. We've read Salem's Lot, and we've read It. And the one consistent thing through all of them is that there is a cotet. In all of those books, there is a cotet that goes through that journey of conquering this evil. And so, again, whether I think it's good or bad, I think it's necessary. And I don't know. I I don't know. I think it's going to take me a long time in my own lifetime to answer the question, is Ka good or bad? I mean, because think about it. Like, as a human, is fate good or bad? I have no idea. There's a lot of literature on this subject. I mean, sometimes it feels like an excuse. There is, you know, there's a lot of debate starting from the ancient Greeks onward. Well, I better get reading then, huh? About whether or not we are free and independent agents. Yeah. It, in ancient Greece, there was debates whether uh, it is the will of the gods or whether it is the will of individuals that ultimately cause human events to happen. And if there is a surrendering to the will of gods or to the will of God or to the will of Ka, to what extent can then anyone be held accountable for any of their own actions? And these things are, yeah. I mean, this is the philosophical soup of Stephen King. 
and it's always going to have a content and there's always going to be some pool greater than that content that guides these characters. But at the end of the day, they do all make choices. Oh yeah. And those choices end up resonating whether we see in this book, whether it's the choice. So Henry Bowers gets a gift of a knife. He makes a choice. Yes. He's heavily guided by the, the force of Pennywise, the clown and it, but he does make a choice to kill his father and right. go into pure madness. Right. Yeah. I don't, I, I, I don't want to say that Ka dictates everything because I don't think that's the truth, but what the dark tower series has taught me is if Ka is anything, it is most certainly a wheel and that things are, are will repeat themselves. And that in order for that wheel to continue to turn, See, I think that Ka is desperate for human sentient things to be able to run. I mean, think about it. If Pennywise were here for millions of years, essentially just feeding off of the earth, right? Because, I mean, Pennywise talks about it. For a long time, it was just eat, sleep, do it all over again. Feed, feed. That's all I care. And then humans came along. He got that taste you know, there's a lot more. If, if we're the sentient ones, if we're the ones that can think past survival, right? If we're the top of the food chain, essentially. Well, then Pennywise, well, of course, of course, I'm gonna, I'm gonna haunt people. I'm gonna eat people. I'm gonna. Now I have a purpose. I think one of the chapters that can maybe highlight this, and it posed a question, and this was, I teased this earlier. This was the chapter that I had to. I had to put down and I had to walk away for a few days. Or are we about to talk about the things? Okay. Yeah. 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 You go first. I want to talk about Patrick and I'm talking of course, when we see Patrick and Henry lighting their own farts, Patrick does this weird sex act on, on Henry. Yeah. He sexually assaults, which is very without his permission and really just messed up and weird. It's, it's really bad. And then we go back into Patrick's life and we learn about Patrick And the th- I finished the chapter, but the thing that really stuck with me, that really was difficult, was the scene where Patrick murders his baby brother. Yeah. With an yeah. infant in my house, you do worry about sudden infant death syndrome, which is you don't know what happened. Your baby just dies. Right. Usually they choke in their cribs. That's what they think yeah. causes that. Something happens and they can't breathe and they choke in their sleep yeah, it's hard while you're sleeping. Yeah, it's terrifying. And it really hurt reading this. And then on the flip side, there is a meditation in there. Patrick seems born wrong, born evil. He's a sociopath. He as a five-year-old. And that, well, I'm, I mean, you know, they're the classic signs of, you know, sociopathic people and, and people who, I mean, to me, I was reading a future serial killer. I mean, he, he kills animals. He clearly he, he murdered at a very, he was five, you know, he was just, I, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I kind of, there's a part of me that feels really bad for Patrick because he, he really had the short end of the stick from the very beginning. Really? I think at five, when you murder your baby brother in a loving home, he like, there was nothing to me that said Patrick suffered, which caused this. No, no, no. What I mean is, is that 
because he was born off. It's it's again like Ka. It's way out of his control, which to me highlights one of the themes. This is a character that whatever free will they had bent them towards death and hate and destruction from the age of a child who seems to have little choice or agency in that regard. Right. Who had to be evil. And I don't think there is a, in that chapter, I don't recall that there's, this was the malevolent force of Pennywise enacting. I think this kid was born a serial killer and started with murdering their, their brother because they got dinner late one day. Yeah. And that was just absolutely the most harrowing, most terrifying chapter for me. Yeah, it's horrifying. And I had to, I did not read the book for a day and a half. Well, sure. And I mean, I mean, obviously, of course, because it's also the perspective that you have as a new parent. And I, I think anybody that reads that, it's really harrowing. I mean, I think more and more, especially in the world that we live in now, that true crime is such a big genre and that there is so much information out there that when I first started to read the chapters with Patrick, it was like, oh, yeah, I mean, this this kid was born a sociopath. He was born where his the chemicals in his brain are not wired. Is that the, they're wired differently. Is that the thinking on sociopaths that they're born? Uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, from a very early age, kids that like kill ants or that harm animals. I mean, one of the kids who wet the bed up until they're like 12 years old, there are like all these signs of, of a future sociopath that you can pick up in a child at a very, very early age. Um, I'm not saying that they're born with it. I is, is that scientific? I'm just, uh, I'm curious. Yeah. I mean, they're, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, trust me, Rebecca, my wife, she, she, it loves true crime. And so, yeah, I hear about the, I hear about these things all the time. It might not be every single serial killer, but the majority of serial killers, which are the majority white men, you can go back to their childhood and link things like they killed animals at a very early age. They wet the bed until a, until an older age, you know, out of their control. And maybe some people can just be born off. Well, and I think the hardest part about it is because he comes from a loving home and it is, it is, but, but then again, I mean, so did Bill, you know? And then when Georgie is killed, Bill's parents completely and utterly forget about him, you know? So I, my, the, the other half of this that I thought about is, is that it's dairy. I mean, they're born in this place that's inherently evil. Which is another way to say it's small town America. And what's funny is, so I'm, I, I'd like to bring up, because I, I actually think that my moment is in direct connection with this. There's a moment in the book where Patrick and Henry, and it's probably Belcher or Huggins or one of the other kids, is about to physically harm Beverly. And there is an old guy across the street. This old woman pulls up and is yelling at the kids or whatever. And Henry goes ape shit, attacks the woman right in the car. She pulls off. And there is an old guy sitting on his front porch directly across the street. And Beverly remembers of all the traumatic moments she remembers. She remembers watching this man roll his newspaper up, stand up, look at them and walk in his house and not help her at all. 
And, and the fucked up part about it is, is that an old white woman is not going to be able to do very much with these young kids. But that feeling of a, of a man coming over, especially in 1958 in this town, the way the patriarchy is viewed, those kids would have taken right off. Well, maybe not. Henry might have stabbed the dude, to be honest with you. He's insane. He's another sociopath who I don't necessarily think was born into it. I think he was abused. But I don't know. He was made. I do think... And I think there's a point there right before and right before that scene where Stephen King talks like there was maybe a moment where Henry could have just been that kid that pushed people in the playground, right? did Indian burns, and then eventually grew out of it and probably wasn't too bright and wouldn't amount to much, but was just the average schoolyard bully. He was the bully, right. That it changed and he became something darker and worse. And that's the moment where he became that darker and worse thing. Yeah, and I mean, part of it is because of Patrick. I mean, Patrick does sexually assault him. And so, you know, it, it, and that is a difficult part of the book to read. I don't care who you are. It's a, it's a very difficult part of the book to read. Um, and you start to, you know, I start to feel bad for, for, uh, for Henry. Because really, Henry at this point is just a pawn. He's his father's pawn. He's the pawn of this group that he hangs out with. He, he, he ends up at the very end being a pawn of Pennywise's. I mean, Henry is just a pawn in this wheel. I mean, he is not in power ever. When they're adults and Henry goes and assaults Mike in the library. Almost Mike kills him. Mike te- says, listen, I could fight back, but whether I kill you or you kill me, we're doing its bidding. Exactly. And that is the malevolent force guiding their hand. And Mike is absolutely right. I mean, and when they're children in that same scene where they assault Penny or they assault Beverly, and then they follow the losers into the, into the, the pipes and into the sewer system, it can't wait to rip the heads off of Victor and, and um, the other guy. Oh yeah. And just kills Henry's friends. So Pennywise is going to consume you one way or another, which is to say that small town America is going to try to consume you one way or another. There's something inherently American about the cruelty of Stephen King, about the cruelty of these towns, about creating a modern American mythological framework that forces us to interrogate our dark natures. Though this was in our first half, it's in the racism, in the burning of the black spot. I mean, it's racism is all through this book, though. I mean, look at the way that Henry speaks to Mike. Kills his dog. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, it's the racism. <coughs> you mentioned the patriarchy, which is a, another way to say sexism. Yeah, rampant. The neglect of children and this whole idea that this town could just be this place that allows every 27 years for children just to get killed and they just keep moving on. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's you know, in, in, in that one scene, you know, where the guy goes in and murders four or five people and they're just guys sitting at the bar drinking who end up murdering him later on. You know, it's this willful ignorance. It's this idea of, well, no, we didn't see anything. That's just, gentleman has to get his anger out. Hey, We'll take care of it later. And and that, I can't tell you, that scene where that guy folds his paper up. I mean, this girl is 11 years old, dude. Like, that made me fucking sick. 
sick to my stomach. It made me think, you know, if I were that guy in that situation, what would I do as an adult now? You know, because I'm not reading this book from from the perspective of my teens or the perspective of my early 20s or even my late 20s. I'm reading this shit almost in my mid-30s. And I start to see myself as an adult a lot more in these narratives than Stephen King. And so I ask myself, like, what would I have done? I mean, I could tell you I would not have done what that, that gentleman chose to do. It's despicable. It's cowardly. It's disgusting. Sorry, I, tot- I, I totally agree, man. That is the moment for me that, that I, I felt. I was, I was even like, how dare Stephen King write somebody that evil? And I had just read Patrick in, in the sexual assault scene. How dare he write someone so simple, make such an evil decision? And again, is that Kyle? Is that Derry? Was that Pennywise that made that happen? Who the fuck knows in this town? Well, the idea that children can become invisible to adults is another major theme. And that Adults don't really see children and see what they're going through as if just because they're children, what they're going through doesn't matter. Do you know what else you're very good at in this, in the, in this podcast? You know what else you're very good at doing? Tell me segues (laughs) because you just naturally segued into something I wanted to talk about. Let's talk about it. There's this idea throughout this entire book that these children become adults way earlier than they should through these highly traumatic experiences. So my question for you, and this is, this is something you have a brand new perspective on. What exactly is the innocence of a child? Because in Stephen King's world, innocence is something that somebody loses way early on to some highly traumatic experience that then allows them later on to fight an evil force. And this is something we see in all of our characters. So what, what do you think the true innocence of a child is? I'm going to answer that. And I've got a feeling this might get long winded. The idea of when you are a child versus when you are an adult is a matter largely of societal convention. Mm -hmm. For example, There are rituals of adulthood that still exist to date that don't meet the standard of adulthood legally. For example, think of the ritual of the bar mitzvah. This is a ritual by which a young Jewish boy becomes, in the eyes of the Jewish tradition and religion, a man. And this takes place at the age of 13, where in our society we say 18 is the age where you become a legal adult. Right. So from 13 to 15, a Jewish tradition says, nope, from 13 to 18, pardon me, a Jewish tradition says you are a man, but for those five years, the law says you're still a child. And even in, if we look back through our own history, the idea that childhood is a innocent phase is very, very new. It, 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 of course. Children are generally, in most phases, in particular of Western Near Eastern society, up until like the last hundred years, are considered legal property of the father to do with as they please. 
with no rights, with no expectations. You know, hence the patriarchy. <laughs> and once they get ritualized into adulthood, the females go to another male, so they get married off, essentially, to, to a, a partnership that is advantageous to the family unit, and then the males have to get married themselves, and they can start inheriting property, going into labor, doing jobs, etc., we live in a interesting period where we say there is a thing called childhood and that thing is inherently innocent in nature and that that innocence is worth preserving and that innocence is worth maintaining for as long as we can. Even though we hit the biological markers of adulthood, which is you're able to now reproduce and create new children, we say Legally and morally, you're still not an adult yet. And we extend that period to the time of 18 where you say, okay, now you have all the rights and privileges of adulthood. Which is, which is insane. Honestly. I mean, if you think about it now, I mean, my own perspective is I didn't feel like an adult until my late 20s, like to my 30th well, birthday. Consider this for most of our history as a, as a species, as long as we've been counting, we, how I would old have been dead are, already. The average life expectancy was about 35. Yeah, exactly. I would have been dead. It would have been two years. Left. So there's not a lot of time. Once you are able to have kids, you're going to have to start having kids. Right. Or the species would go extinct. And a lot of that drives those decisions. Well, now that we have modern medicine, now that we have the ability with modern education, now that we have the ability to extend our life expectancy well into our 80s, the idea of what your childhood is has fundamentally changed. And the childhood is this period of time before adulthood where you are legally and morally innocent. Case in point, I commit a crime, I'm 11 years old, I don't go to jail. My family hits hard times. I'm 11 years old. I'm not expected to go work in order to pay for my family. There's a war. We don't have enough warriors. I'm 11 years old. I'm not expected to pick up a spear and go and fight. All of this is to say innocence is a modern, childhood innocence is a modern creation, right. largely, that says that there is this period before adulthood where you are fundamentally innocent. It's linked to the idea of free will and choice. If we can be innocent, that means we can be guilty, which means our choices inherently have meaning. So what we do can determine our innocenceness or guiltinessness, for lack of a better term. Those words aren't real. <laughs> I just made them up. It's fine. And I think we see with King and why it is so glaring is King turns this idea onto its very head. And says, no, these are only children by convention. These are actually a mystical, powerful army ready to defeat evil. But in reality, they are, they are ignored and their concerns are flushed away because they're children, they're innocent, they don't really know the world. Yeah, it's that old, you know, children should be seen and not heard. In reality, they know more about what's going on than anyone than else in Derry. And it's they're better, exactly they're better prepared to attack that thing, that very thing that makes Derry rotten from the core. These children are the ones that can fight it and fight it better than any of the adults. Part well, yeah, of that is the adults just roll their newspaper up and walk inside. Exactly. 
Where Bill says, no, you took my brother, I'm taking a stand. Right, and where his parents have just fallen into that depression and have have allowed that to eat them alive. I mean, look, I couldn't imagine, you know, what, what Bill Denbro's parents have gone through, truly. But you do have another child that needs that love and support, you know. And I, I felt bad for Bill almost the entire book, you know, because he's looked at as the leader. But when he gets home, he's invisible, you know. And, and I don't know. I always thought that that was a really interesting concept. And the other thing about childhood is, you know, there's we haven't talked about it yet. But I, I do think we should, we should you know, broach the, the issue is that there is the scene in the book where Beverly chooses to um to have sex with all of the other all six boys the 11 year old beverly the 11 year old beverly and the reason why i say she chooses is because she is not forced into it she is the leader of this idea in fact several of the boys say no several times and so it borders on this idea of a ritual that gets really uncomfortably close to sexual assault. But the thing that I, I'm not going to say justifies that scene, because again, they're 11-year-olds. But they are 11-year-olds who have been through a mountain of trauma in a summer, in not even two months. I'd say beyond trauma. They've also transcended space and time. Right. Right. They've linked their minds. I mean, I mean, Bill's brother is is murdered and taken from him. Beverly is abused and assaulted by her father. You know, M- M- Mike is a black boy in 1958 or period in the United States. The trauma that comes with that. You know, Richie's parents don't pay any attention to him. Eddie's Eddie's mother is a psychopath. You know, Poor Stan Uris can't even can't grow up and 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 take the weight of what they did. Couldn't even make it into adulthood. I think he's a coward, but we hashed that out last right. time, right? I mean, he can't handle it. And you know, and there and and for a long time, I had this this predicated notion that that scene was going to be wildly uncomfortable. That I don't know why St- Stephen King is a freak. I don't know why in the world that would happen. <laughs> I mean, we read The Dark Tower first, right? I mean, there are things that happen sexually in his books, a lot of them being ritualistic. You know, whether you agree with them or not, personally, I actually thought that this scene, especially since it came from Beverly's choice and her power, was quite beautiful. I mean, it linked the seven of these people in a way that a lot of things can't. Now, again, look, they're 11, so it's kind of fucking weird for me to sit here and use the word beautiful. But they're 11-year-olds who, who, who are, are far older than their age number based on what they've been asked to go through, based on what's been forced upon them. And before... Beverly's father takes that from her or some other abusive person in her lifetime. She chooses to give that up to a group of people that she truly loves. 
Yeah, a few things I I want to say. I was kind of dreading. I knew this was coming because how infamous it is. I and, feel like I need to take a shower now. <laughs> and I knew it was going to be something we'd have to talk about. And I expected it to be deeply problematic in ways that were going to make me angry and want to stand on a soapbox. Yeah. And espouse my liberal values. We were and, ready to do that. And I was ready to do that as well. So a few things I want to highlight about the symbolic meaning of that scene and before I talk about some of the literal meaning of that scene, symbolically speaking, this is right after we learn that it is female and that it has the power to have it babies, which could then devour the world. There is a perverse femininity inherent in it and its ability to want to consume and kill, confront and destroy at all costs. At a moment when the losers are at the precipice of being lost in these tunnels to being lost in the darkness, Beverly symbolically creates a positive version of femininity, which I know that's a loaded term. And I know that a lot of people are going to say she's 11 years old. She doesn't know what that means. I'm not talking about the literal. I'm talking about the symbolic. Symbolically speaking, this is a moment where feminine power is contrasted to the feminine power of it and uses feminine power to reclaim herself, to give focus to the team and to ultimately become a leader that leads them out of the darkness. It is the femininity that got, that is the guiding principle. The fact that Stephen King literally grounds it in a sex act is uncomfortable. Of course it is. I agree. And is an unfortunate decision But if we take our previous conversation about childhood innocence into play, we recognize that King is also saying these are not children and there is no childhood innocence. That's an illusion. And that's why I bring it up. That's why I bring it up. It is a commonly known um, fact about children is that they discover sex and their sexuality when they're very young most of the time. They don't wait until they're 18 to discover sex and their sexuality. These children are discovering their sex and their sexuality, and it's really icky, and it's really gross, and it is not something that any of us should feel comfortable with. I personally don't. You personally don't. But in the context of the darkness and the perversion of this book, it wasn't, in my opinion, the most perverse part of it. No. No, not at all. It is perverse for children to all have sex with each other no, in, a, I, in a tunnel when they're 11. That is fundamentally perverse. I wish somebody would have warned me that there is a, a different, really horrible sexual assault act that happens in the book. No one ever talks about that. It's always about this, and, and it's always mislabeled in all the conversations that I'd, I've had as a child orgy. That's not... If if that's what it was, I would have burned this book. I would have been like, no, man, this is this fucking, that's crazy. And again, not to say that that scene was not uncomfortable because it was, of course it is. It's fucking weird. It's weird. To, it's a weird about 11 year olds. But, but again, like you said, King is making a direct point that they are not children at this point. And all of the rituals that we see these children and when they become adults go through, in their battle against it are all linked into the body to one degree or another. 
They're all about, even though the ritual of Chud is about biting the tongue of your enemy. Right. Um, which can be seen as a symbolic sexual act. And as well as we find that there is a femininity to it. Furthermore, we find out that its entire existence was farted into existence by the the cosmic turtle. Right. Everything is linked to these core bodily functions and their magic and their inherent power. Now, this is not to say if you listening think this was the worst scene ever, I'm not trying to change your mind. Not at all. Not think, at all. Think how you need to think. I just thought after reading a five-year-old suffocate their baby, after reading about a mother convincing their son they have a disease that doesn't exist, after reading about a bully carving his initials into the belly of a young man, after reading about a sexual assault after lighting farts from one child to another, a borderline sexual assault where they just start doing a sex act on another kid. To me, this one I was prepared for. I was like, okay, I get it. I don't like it, but it is by far not the most fucked up thing in this book. Yeah, no, of course. And, and you know, it, which is a difficult thing to talk about. It's so crazy saying out loud and recording that for the internet to know for the rest of time. Oh man, trust me. I, I had the same thought, but, but it is, but if we didn't talk about it, it, it would be pretty obvious that we were avoiding it. And I, I think it is a, a, a big piece of the book in terms of the, their quartet becoming their quartet fully. Could there be a million different ways for Beverly to reclaim her femininity and use that to guide them out of those tunnels? Absolutely. Yes. There are a million other ways that could have gone. But that's not what happened. And, and we have to deal with what happened. And that's the truth. Like, it's not what King wrote. And it's nasty. It's gross. It is absolutely gross. I get it. It makes sense in the universe. And the way that it's written is beautiful. It is. I mean, she really ushers a a lot of confidence and a lot of of trust with these boys. There's a couple times where it's uncomfortable, though, you know, because some of them are like, no, no, no. And she's like, you got this. And it's like, well, I mean, if it were, it's, 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 it's uncomfortable. It really, and that's okay. Yeah, and that's okay. I, I, I also think that we need to remove this stigma off of talking about trauma. And let me clarify something about that because it's not an easy thing to talk about. What I mean by removing the stigma is, you know, growing up at, as a young Italian kid, it was always, you know, you don't talk about in, important things. You, if somebody's sick, it's hush hush. If somebody, you know, if something's happening in the family between a couple family members, it's hush hush. Like I'm still the last person to know anything that happens in my family. And the reason I bring that up is because I'm always the first one that wants to deal with the traumatic parts of it, that wants to talk through the hard stuff. That, and that's me as a person. I know for a lot of people, depending on the level of trauma that you've experienced, we've all experienced some sort of trauma in our lifetime whatever your level of experience is, I think we should remove the stigma from it where it's like, oh no, you shouldn't talk about that. The shoulds and the shouldn'ts of life. Because to me, the more that we can converse about it, the more that we can talk about it in a, in a medium like this, the more accepted it becomes where we can have healthy conversations about really difficult experiences. 
You know, I mean, I've said this a million times. The reason why Stephen King is popular, I've said it earlier in this episode, because of the people that he writes and the and the experiences that they go through. There's, you know, he is not just the most successful writer in American history because he writes horror. It's because people read the books and like you said earlier, they see themselves in these people. Why the why else do we read novels, dude? Why do we watch movies? Why do we watch television? It's not just to be entertained. We are trying to learn about the human experience. What does it mean to be human? And trauma and and, and joy alike. Now I will remove my soapbox. <laughs> Yep, but, but I wanted to clarify that because I don't want to sound like this, like, you know, this cisgender white dude that's just like, we should be talking about our trauma. I mean it in the most supportive way possible. That's an interesting thing that you said because there were parts of this book, though enjoyable to read, that I wasn't fundamentally entertained by. No, they're fucking traumatic. Similar to The Dark Tower. Yes. My experience of reading it paralleled my experience of the dark tower it's a long slog halfway through you want to give up there are parts of it that turn your stomach and at the end then when when you're done you're like that was the most brilliant thing it's not all just face value entertaining it's not just mindless pleasure there is a lot to unpack here i mean put it this way why why are comic books something that i've recently fallen back in love with in in my early adulthood why are comic books so popular? Is it just because of these magical superpowers that these, that these people possess? No, no. Why are there character lines from 1938 that are still being examined today? Why? Because it's a different way to look at the human condition, to go to look and process through trauma, through joy, through anger, through sadness, through every human emotion that you could possibly go through, through the lens of these superhuman people, where, where, where you know, the stakes are so high. Interesting thought, but I'm going to rail this in because we could go into a comic rabbit hole, which oh, is I not know. this podcast. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. I, wanted, I want us to focus next on the end, in particular the debates of whether the end are good or not. And I think that'll pretty much get us to the end here of the this episode. Yeah. We threw out on the Midnight Myth Twitter. So follow us at the Midnight Myth, the parent podcast of the Wheel of Ka. And we wanted to do a, a Twitter poll. We asked if the ending ending of it was either brilliant, disappointing, disturbing, or it's complicated. Oh, I'm interested to hear this. The results are 40% said brilliant, 40% said disappointing. 20% said disturbing and none voted it's complicated. Wow. We had some comments I wanted to read from uh, some folks here. So Ooh, at, please. Yeah. At pretendium. And hopefully I said that right. Said quote, King famously botches the landing on most of his epics, but it is the exception. The 100 plus page ritual and battle is the best Cthulhu RPG session ever written and riching biting the devil by its tongue is a highlight. Seems unfilmable, though, after two tries. Yeah. This is from at PDefender716. I read it every two years, and while it's my second fave SK book, meaning Stephen King book, behind 112263, the ending is a bit of a misstep. Better than the movies, both. 
To which I replied like, hey, tell me more. Why is the ending disappointing? And uh, P Defender 716 says, I was expecting more, kind of like how the Crimson King went out. I wanted more of an epic fight between good and evil with maybe a little help from the turtle. I will say that I was fine with the smoke hole and the ritual of Chud, just the older group's ending. So it's so interesting, you know? Hold, hold on. So just to recap, pretty much an even split between brilliant yeah. and disappointing yeah. from this poll. So I think, the, and with a few that said disturbing, because let's face it, well, it, it is it is disturbing. Sure. So I want to point this to you. You have a vote now, Steve. Brilliant, disappointing, disturbing, it's complicated. What's your vote? And then tell me why. It's complicated. Because I, again, for a lot of people, the purpose of this book is defeating it. But we have talked about how the evil never really goes away. And for me, the reason why I say it's complicated is because as a reader, what I wanted is different than what I think should happen. And of course, what I wanted was, I mean, I wanted Stan to be there the whole time. I wanted all seven of them to be together. But that's not reality. And this is the thing I think I come back to that makes me fall in love with Stephen King every single time, is that the ending's complicated. And it's supposed to be complicated because it's a fucking wheel. There is no ending. It doesn't end. Even his stories, there is no cut and dry, you know, the group battles the evil. There is not a single book of his so far and that I know of that you can point to that has a nice, crisp, clean, everybody lives happily ever after ending, which is what we strive for so much as an audience. But that is not reality. And the thing about Stephen King that being a third time I'm going to bring it up in this podcast is that it's not about the supernatural. It's about the human condition and that learning and that understanding doesn't end. So for me, the answer truly is, I mean, look, I do think the ending's brilliant. I think it's great. I loved it. I was in love with it, but the true answer is it's complicated. I like that answer. I'm going to, I voted on my own poll, which I guess maybe you shouldn't do, but I did. <laughs> I didn't just so you know. I voted it's brilliant. So I'm one of, if it wasn't for me, it's just, it's disappointing would have won because <laughs> of the tie. <laughs> I love that you just admitted that live. I mean, well, as soon as the poll went up, I instantly voted on it. You realize and voted. That that's not something that you have to admit though, right? Eh, I'm an honest, I'm an open book, you know, I'm, uh, I'm going to be real with you. You're too good. Wheel of caught. You know, all You're of my too good, Luke Skywalker. You're my, just too good. My digital content, I will not mislead you. So I'm one of the votes. Otherwise, disappointing would have won because it was a tie between That's the two. So interesting. I, I, I Gen know, genuinely speaking, most people dislike or have negative feelings about the end. By and large, people are disappointed in this. I asked my mom, who this is one of her favorite books, and she told me. The book is so good. The characters are so real. And I'm paraphrasing from my mom. How do you actually end it in a way that makes you feel good? Because what you care about is, is the characters. And then once it's over, you just miss them. But that's the answer. The an they forget. 
Steve is shaking his arms in the air. uh, He's so animated. But that's the answer. The answer is, is that like, there is no way to end it because there's no end to it. There's gonna, someone is gonna come back to Derry 27 years from now and experience something, whether it's Pennywise or some other evil, because that part of the beam is broken. And so to me, it's like, I do, I feel very vitriolic about this. It's like, I don't understand this incessant need, and maybe this is me as an actor or a cynist. Uh, I, I have no idea. Is that the way you say it? Yeah, that's okay. fine. I, I have no idea if it's, if it could, could be both of those things, I don't know. Could be that I'm just super passionate about this, but I do not understand this incessant need for folks to want a nice, neat, clean happy ending i mean after everything that happens in this book if it were a nice neat happy ending i mean we get a nice neat happy ending bill gets back on silver and wakes his comatose wife up and is like hi ho silver away like how is that not a nice picturesque happy little ending well, people can be disappointed on a lot of different I'm, levels. I'm obviously very frustrated by this this concept that it's a bad ending because that's just not true. I, oh, I I voted brilliant. Let me just go out there and say I'm I, sorry. I but... believe that it is a brilliant ending, but I think people can be disappointed for a lot of different reasons. I think um, for you know what uh, you know, public defender said they wanted like an epic battle. They wanted something that felt like it put the cap on this gigantic journey. Now for me, right? I see you about to to jump in here. So let me finish my point. (laughs) No, please. I'm sorry. For me, I got that epic battle versus good versus evil. I, I read this as we're going to transcend space and time. We are going to psychically free ourselves from our body and we are going to have our spirits transcend the material into the spiritual and we're going to look evil in its face and we're going to rip its heart out. To me, that was epic. But if you were expecting something like the battle of Helm's deep, you might be disappointed in this. And and I under, I understand that, but there's no point in the book that leads you to believe that that's going to happen. There's no point in the book where you're led to believe that there's going to be this giant. I mean, we know from the very beginning of the book that Stan's not even going to make it. I also think because of the popularity of Stephen King, there is something to the horror ending that if you're not a horror fan writ large, you may misunderstand. And oftentimes horror endings, if we think of it, as a horror book first, and that might not be the right way to look at it, but if we do, horror book endings typically don't have the ending that you're looking for. The idea of horror as an interrogation of both the natural versus the supernatural, and using that to say, who are we in the face of the supernatural? Usually the horror endings can leave us feeling a little empty and hollow by design. I mean, this is also, though, to play devil's advocate, this is like, all right. So again, to play devil's advocate, I totally understand where public defender is coming from. And I get it. Like there is this idea of expectations and the things that we as a viewer or we as a reader want, you know, I'll use myself as an example. I thought that the seventh and eighth seasons of game of Thrones were trash. I thought the ending was horrible. 
I was really super disappointed. Oh, can can I chime in with something? Yeah. You also really wanted Roland and the Man in Black I to did. battle. Absolutely. You're, you see, and exactly. Thank you for that perspective. I wanted that so badly, and remember being really disappointed that it didn't happen. So that makes total sense. I think the thing that I'm learning as as a Stephen King reader, and now a person who is like studying Stephen King in a way, is that I have thrown the expectation of what I think I want and what I'm going to get. Like, I've thrown that away. There is no longer an expectation, especially after the end of the Dark Tower, because like you just reminded me, thank you, there were a lot of things that I wanted in the Dark Tower that did not happen. And in fact... If they did happen, the story might not be as interesting. And so where I can sympathize with with Public Defender is that, yes, I hear you. Like, I totally wanted... Who doesn't want a big battle with the spiritual at the end? But I will argue that, like, you know, Bill, like, Captain America rushing him and Richie biting his tongue and Bill ripping his heart out. And and I keep saying his, which is really awful because we've established it's female, so I'm sorry. So I should just refer to it as it ripping its heart out and, and, you know, getting this kind of psychedelic hippie message from the turtle. It's like, I don't know, man, kind of, you got to figure it out. You know, and I, I can understand that after reading a book this big and it being so cosmically all over the place that we want resolution. And what I'm starting to think about Stephen King is that if I want resolution, he's not the author I should go to. I wholeheartedly agree. And Stephen King is going to telegraph certain expectations and will often subvert them and often pull the rug underneath our eyes and go a place we weren't expecting or seeing. Yeah. And it is no difference there and thank you to everybody that filled out the poll by the way and thank you to those who commented um it really does means a lot to to derek and i i mean especially me you know being still feeling sometimes like an outsider uh to the midnight myth but please anytime we put those polls up um make sure to follow the midnight myth on twitter and make sure just anytime you can give us anything that you think you know we really do take it into consideration and obviously it 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 makes the episode so so thank you So here at the end, I think I would ask for you to do another reading, a reading of it from the very last paragraph of the entire epic. Mm. And I was really struck by this last paragraph when I read it. And would you mind, because Steve, you're just a awesome actor. Oh, thanks, man. Would you mind reading this before we wrap? No, of course. So, in the book that we have, this is page 1152, it's chapter 8. He awakens from this dream, unable to remember exactly what it was, or much at all beyond the simple fact that he has dreamed about being a child again. He touches his wife's smooth back as she sleeps her warm sleep and dreams her own dreams. He thinks that it is good to be a child, but it's also good to be grown up and able to consider the mystery of childhood, its beliefs and desires. I will write about all of this one day, he thinks, and knows it's just a dawn thought, an after-dreaming thought. 
But it's so nice to think so for a while in the morning's clean silence, to think the childhood has its own sweet secrets and confirms mortality, and that mortality defines all courage and love. To think that what is looked forward must also look back, and that each life makes its own imitation of immortality. A wheel. Or so Bill Denbro sometimes thinks on those early mornings after dreaming, when he almost remembers his childhood and the friends with whom he shared it. Long days and pleasant nights. Long days and pleasant nights.